Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Chandra Balani, Chief Scientific Officer of IASLC. Joining me on this episode is Dr. Stephen Liu to talk about lung cancer research presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology virtual meeting this past weekend. Dr. Stephen Liu is an associate professor at Lombardi Cancer Center at Georgetown University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Liu. Thank you for having me, Chandra. Thank you, Stephen, for coming uh, on the podcast. So let's start with a casual question that what did you think of virtual ASCO in general? Did you think that the meeting was well presented and it went without a hitch? I was very impressed with how virtual ASCO went. I didn't have a lot of expectations going in. You know, this is a huge meeting that requires a full year of planning. And so to completely change the format to, to one that's virtual with such little lead time was quite a task. And I think you'll agree, it really turned out great. I was very impressed. And I think that they did a remarkable job in conducting the meeting, and especially the broadcast sessions were very impressive. I think there are a lot of potential advantages. You know, as we look beyond the pandemic and other meetings, I think there are some clear advantages to a virtual format. One that comes to mind is access. You know, ASCO is an important meeting that's always on our calendar, but not everyone's able to travel to Chicago. You know, for some, there are cost barriers, childcare responsibilities. And, you know, I'm thinking of the walk that you and I might take from Hall B to Hall D to try to get there in, in 10 minutes for a session. Uh, we think of how challenging it is for our colleagues with disabilities or those with less mobility. You wipe the slate clean. You really level those barriers with a virtual format. And suddenly we can all experience that ASCO meeting together really from, from every corner of the globe. I agree with you. I think that we walk from one hall to another and it's impossible to actually leave one hall in the middle of a session and go to listen to another presentation which is happening somewhere else. And here it was actually much easier and I learned a lot actually on the virtual meeting. And you know, as, as we sort of look globally, we also appreciate there's a big environmental impact to a lot of these meetings by cutting down airfare and travel. We, we lessen the carbon footprint. But I think you might agree with me, Chandra, that there are, I think, some advantages to being at a meeting, you know, whether it's ASCO or World Lung in person. Of course. I miss the interactions and I miss the conversations in the hallway. And I miss uh, seeing, I didn't see you, right? <laughs> That's right. We didn't, we didn't see each other. And, and I think that as we think of our, our past ASCOs together, it's a lot more than just that social connection. You know, I think that's important, but when you and I are sitting in a hall, seeing that data for the first time, you know, we interpret it a little differently, right? We hone in on uh, different aspects of the data. Maybe we'll notice different shortcomings or flaws. You know, we've had different career paths, different experiences, different values. So we see the, those same slides through different eyes. And I think there is immense value in, in appreciating and understanding each other's perspective. So when I really listen to your opinion, your train of thought, and reconcile it with my first impressions, uh, that's how I really sort of shape my understanding of that data. And that piece, I think, is missing. I think creativity comes out of that. 
Yeah. How many of the trials that, that we've done have really started with just these conversations in the halls or a cup of coffee? Going back, I remember that I divided 135 by three and gave 45 milligrams per meter squared of taxol in combination with radiation. That was it. There was no phase one trial. It was just a pure and simple division. Instead of three weeks, one week was 45 per meter square. So I think that those things are missing when you have virtual meetings. Yeah. All right, we'll go ahead and get started, Stephen. So tell me about your uh, interaction on social media. I see that you are always active on social media. You are the first one to comment on a paper which has uh, value or which is practice changing. Well, you know, I, I do find it helpful. I have been fairly active on Twitter and I use it primarily as a learning and a teaching tool. And that aspect that you pointed out is in calling attention to certain articles. You know, there's so much information out there. We live in this age where everything is so readily available that we cannot read every issue of every journal. So if, if I come across a manuscript that I find enlightening or unexpected, I can share that across a social media platform, kind of raise awareness and try to gain other people's perspectives on that. And a lot of our colleagues, yourself included, do the same. So I think it's a, a way to call attention to data so that it's not overlooked. So how do you teach these younger folks who are coming in that to be active on social media so that uh, they can also learn the same way as uh, you or I or others have started to do? I think it's really important to understand the limitations of the platform. Uh, it's not really always a, a good platform for debate. Uh, you're not going to change everyone's mind, you know, no matter how well-crafted your, your tweet is. But I think what you can do uh, is provide some balance to the discussion and you know, provide what we talked about, your perspective. I think there's a lot of value in that. And I also think that as medical professionals, certainly in, in academia, this is an opportunity to balance a lot of the misinformation that's out there. We can see that that some patients are really being told maybe the wrong thing or misinterpreting some of that data. And so you can provide this clear voice to sort of redirect or refocus the conversation. And I think that we have a, a nice obligation to balance that misinformation with real actual data. So going back to the scientific program at ASCO this year on lung cancer, what do you think were the two practice changing abstracts that were presented? And can you really describe them in a short summary form? Well, when I look at the, the practice changing abstracts, there was, there was a lot that came out. Um, if I talk first about small cell, which is a particular interest in mine, we saw a few negative trials come out. We saw the results from the phase three keynote 604 trial. Uh, we've already known from Empower 133 and from Caspian that the addition of a Tezo or Derva to chemotherapy did improve survival. 604 looked at the addition of Pembro, and while it did provide a modest improvement in PFS, uh, with that hazard ratio around 0.75, that didn't translate to an improvement in overall survival. Um, we also saw the, the third arm of Caspian readout, the addition of dervalimab with tremolimumab to chemotherapy. And while Derva alone improved OS, that addition of the CTLA-4 antibody failed to do so. Those were two big high-profile trials that did not hit their survival endpoint. But what sort of came out of nowhere for me, uh, what I think may be uh, more immediately practice-changing was a smaller randomized phase two study uh, by Dr. Uh, Bjorn Gronberg that looked at high dose thoracic radiation in limited stage small cell. You know, small cell is an unforgiving disease. A lot of times we just get one shot at treating that cancer. Uh, and our standard, if we're using twice daily radiation for limited stage small cells, 45 gray, uh, Dr. Gronberg 
looked at a trial, randomized phase two, where they escalated that to high dose, 60 gray. And their primary endpoint to your overall survival, dramatic improvement from 46.1% to 70.2% to your survival rate. Median survival, uh, while immature, went from 23 months to 42 months. This to me was was sort of out of nowhere. I didn't really have this trial on my radar, but this has the potential to sort of immediately change how I treat a limited stage small cell lung cancer. And what was maybe just as surprising was that the radiation toxicity was not dramatically different. So why do you think that additional 20 gray radiation therapy did not add to the toxicity? Does that really happen? You know, I think that radiation can be a little different from escalating doses of chemotherapy. And if we target radiation in the right ways. And if we're clever with where those beams are going and get a little more sophisticated with our planning, as that technology and the experience from focusing radiation in the right places increases, we think we can limit some of that toxicity. So in uh, summary, I guess, either Durva with or Carbo with etoposide or atazolizumab with carboplatin or cisplatin and etoposide are the standard of care for patients with uh, small cell lung cancer. Is that true? I absolutely agree with that. And which would you choose? Do you choose? Well, do you have a choice? You know, I think it comes down to comfort. When I look at Empower 133, the addition of Atezo improved OS. When I look at Caspian, the addition of Derva improved OS. And while there are differences in trial design, in eligibility, in small features of those studies, I think you'll agree they're much more similar than they are different. And those trials really, I think, reinforce each other, that when you add a pdl one antibody concurrently with chemotherapy, we improve survival. And to me, the decisions between the two are largely non-clinical. Uh, I think that once you get into the maintenance setting, either can be given every four weeks uh, based on FDA approvals. And so uh, they're very comparable. So if there were differences in cost, in accessibility, in formularies, that would push you one way or the other. If all are equal, I really think it comes down to comfort. Um, for me, I'm more comfortable with the Tezo. I've been using that longer, and so that's my current standard. I don't see the Caspian data as a means to really uh, motivate change in my practice, uh, but I would view that as roughly equivalent. I agree with you. I think that, so in this day and age, when we are dealing with this pandemic, do you give all three drugs together, or uh, you wait for the third drug to be given later? It's a great question. You know, Giving them concurrently, will that increase the toxicity. Right now, my approach is to stay as the trial did and give those all concurrently. Um, if I were to delay the use of immunotherapy until after chemotherapy, that's much more of a maintenance approach. And while this trial in Power 133, Caspian, these two studies weren't really designed to answer that question, we do have a trial that was. Checkmate 451 looked at patients with small cell lung cancer who had not progressed after chemotherapy and then were randomized to receive maintenance immunotherapy or placebo. And then the primary endpoint of that was looking at the combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab versus placebo. And I think somewhat to our surprise, at least my surprise, that study did not improve survival. The addition of nivolumab and ipilimumab in the maintenance setting before progression didn't improve survival over placebo. So waiting until maintenance really was not an effective strategy. Small cell lung cancer is a disease that uh, you know, you and I have both studied uh, over the years, and I think that there are a lot of approaches, a lot of strategies that should have worked, that were very logical, and just didn't. And this is one disease, I think maybe above others, where I try to stick to the data. When something works, 
We stick with it because we, I don't think we fully understand this disease as much as we'd like to. So my approach right now is as the trials were concurrent immunotherapy with chemotherapy followed by maintenance immunotherapy as the only proven strategy to really extend survival for these patients. So what we wrote in our manuscript, which was recently published in the Journal of Thoracic Oncology, is that a patient has a borderline performance status, chemotherapy probably should be given first. And then you can add the immunotherapy. But if the patient has a good performance status, I agree with you that all three should be given at the same time. But in this day and age, when we are dealing with this infection, the coronavirus, I think that we need to be very cautious so that patients don't end up on uh, respiratory support. Yeah, I think there are a lot of gaps in our data knowledge. You're right. We don't fully uh, appreciate how much these agents add to survival in a poor performance status in certain circumstances. And I think a lot of it really depends on your own geographic uh, location and sort of what the the coronavirus pandemic is like where you are. If you were at the peak infection in New York, where really 100% of the hospital was infected, where resources were quite limited, I think you really have a hard time justifying uh, the use of a lot of the strategies we would typically offer. Whereas if you were where I am in Washington, D.C., never really saw those peaks, we never really uh, got to those very high levels, um, uh, never really near our capacity, we were able to, to really continue providing the same treatment for, for much of this uh, the past few months. Very good. Thanks. We'll switch gears to non-small cell lung cancer and talk about immunotherapy. There have been two recent approvals, one based on Checkmate 227 and the other based on combination immunotherapy with chemotherapy based on Checkmate 9LA. Is that 9LA? Yeah, that's right. So how about uh, talking briefly about those two approvals in lung cancer and where do they fit? Well, the, the, the first part is a lot easier than that second part. I, yeah, think. I know. Finding where they fit is, is really what we're going to be looked at over the next few years. So let's talk briefly about the two presentations, which were given by Dr. Ramalingam and uh, by uh, Dr. Reck. Reck Martin. Dr. Reck presented Checkmate 9 LA. This was the first time we've seen that data, despite the fact that the regimen is already FDA approved. Uh, first time in, in my knowledge that, that the approval came before we even saw the data. FDA is moving fast, I guess. Moving quite fast. Uh, Checkmate 9 LA really looks like sort of a kitchen sink approach where you're using a combination of nivolumab, a PD-1 inhibitor, with ipilimumab, a CTLA-4 inhibitor, and platinum doublet chemotherapy. So a quadruplet uh, drug approach and that regimen only used two cycles of chemotherapy. And so not the usual four cycles that we employ with squamous and no maintenance chemotherapy that we employ with non-squamous, just two cycles of chemotherapy uh, with nivolumab and ipilimumab. And when we compare that to chemotherapy alone, that approach of nevoipi chemo, the 9LA approach was superior in survival with an improvement in OS, hazard ratio about 0.69. And this was across all pdl one subsets. Now we're giving more drugs, and so the toxicity is going to be more as well. But the thought here is that that initial chemotherapy may prevent hyperprogression, if you're a believer in that, uh, may prevent that initial drop in PFS, and by limiting it to two cycles, maybe you are not impeding the development of memory T cells. Maybe you're not developing those later cumulative chemotherapy toxicities, uh, the, the later uh, risks with cytopenias, and allowing that nevoipi to provide that long-term maintenance. A slightly different approach from Checkmate 227, which was just nivolumab and ipilimumab compared to chemotherapy. And we saw at ESMO last year, 
uh, that that study was positive compared to chemotherapy providing an OS benefit, what Dr. Ramalingam presented was three-year follow-up. And this is really important because the whole appeal of immunotherapy is not an incremental benefit. It's not a, a change in response rate or in PFS. It's really long-term survival. That's what we haven't been able to offer for so long. And that's what we can achieve now in some patients. And what we saw with more time was that three-year survival rates were superior, that that benefit that we initially saw persisted. The three-year survival rate with nevo-ipi was 33%, only 22% with chemotherapy, uh, and that's in the pdl one positive. In the pdl one negative, the nevo-ipi performed pretty comparably, 34% um, three-year survival in the pdl one negative versus only 15% with chemotherapy alone. Now, that's something I found interesting about the 227 data is when we look at positive versus negative pdl one status, we see a difference in how chemotherapy performs, performs better in the pdl one positive versus the negative, but the, the nevo-ipi arm really pretty consistent. We saw a comparable median survivals with the initial publication. We saw here almost identical three-year survival rates. So nevo-ipi performs pretty consistently. The hazard ratio better in the pdl one negative because the chemotherapy arm seems to be performing less well. But this presentation provided that validation that yes, with more time, that benefit persists and you have a real chance at, at long-term durable survival. Um, and, and that to me is, is what's most important about these regimens. Now, how to fit that into our practice, <laughs> more to you, Chandra, than, than me. I mean, we have multiple options that are positive. It's a very similar situation to sort of the, the initial ECOG studies where you had multiple chemotherapy options and everyone sort of had their own preference and really didn't know which was better. Um, and, and that really led to the cooperative groups to try to answer which of those is, is really superior, if at all. But the first in the race always wins, right? So at currently, what's your algorithm for advanced non-small cell lung cancer? So let's break it down into non-squamous and squamous. Sure. You know, it's, it's evolving, Chandra, and, and yes. um, uh, don't, don't hold me. Uh, no, no, I guess we are just uh, <laughs> asking the listeners uh, or telling the listeners what we think is the best practice uh, method at the current point in time. You know, right now for the PDL1 high group, uh, I've gone back and forth on this, but if you're asking me today in PDL1 high, I really prefer the PD1, PDL1 monotherapy. Here we have Pembro approved, we have a Tezo approved very recently on Empower 110. My preference right now today is probably going to be for PDL1 high, Pembrolizumab, based on the fact that I can now give that every six weeks. I'm avoiding that chemotherapy, which I think uh, can uh, be a negative risk factor for. COVID infection, for COVID complications, the ability to, to sort of not administer cytotoxic chemotherapy right now in the midst of the pandemic does have value to me. So for my pdl one high, I'm favoring the monotherapy with a, a PD-1 inhibitor. For 1 to 49%? No, for 1 to 49, while we do have FDA approval of pembrolizumab based on Keynote 42, when we look at that subset of 1 to 49, as we know, there wasn't a clear superiority uh, over chemotherapy, whereas in that subgroup, the combination of chemoimmunotherapy really was superior. And, and I do employ uh, a chemoimmunotherapy combination for the, the 1 to 49 group. My preference here primarily, and I think that, that as you mentioned, uh, old habits die hard. And, and first is, is really sets that scene. We get comfortable with that regimen. For my 1 to 49, I'm really using the, the platinum doublets with pembrolizumab, either pemetrexed if it's non-squamous, Paclitaxel if it's um, uh, squamous. And for PDL1, less than 1%. Well, 
Well, here uh, for PDL1 negative, maybe I'll ask my fellows to stop listening for a moment, but for, for PDL1 negative, I'm actually favoring the, the Nevo Ipi combination. Now, this is off label use. Um, the Volumab Ipilumab approved by the FDA based on Checkmate 227, but the primary endpoint here was in the PDL1 positive group. In PDL1 positive, I feel we have a lot of other options. I don't know that there's a great compelling reason for me to change my practice, but in PDL1 negative, we're looking at chemoimmunotherapy. I really like how that nivolumab ipilimumab performs in that PDL1 negative group. It's an impressive hazard ratio. It's an impressive median. It's a three-year survival rate now of 34%. And while you know we know that, that we, we have to plan for the now, we have to use what we think is best today, part of me likes the, the idea that if nivolumab and ipilimumab isn't the long-term answer, my second-line option now is platinum doublet chemotherapy. Whereas if I'm using chemoimmunotherapy, my second-line option really is docetaxel with or without ramucirumab. And I like the, the option of maybe having a better next-line option. So for my pdl one negatives, I've really shifted to nivolumab and ipilimumab. And I will say, anecdotally, I've been surprised with the tolerability. I think this is a regimen that took us a little while to figure out in terms of dosing, but at the current dosing used in Checkmate 227, uh, I've been happy with how well it's been tolerated. Actually, I use chemoimmunotherapy, meaning chemotherapy with pembrolizumab, because the ipinivo is uh, off-label then, right? It is. It is off-label, absolutely. And your answer, by all concrete measures, is more correct. But my practice right now is, is evolving a little bit, and I think there might be a role for, for dual checkpoint inhibitors in non-small cell lung cancer. So is there a value to giving four drugs? I think it is financially toxic. It certainly is. And so you, you would know, not give four drugs, AP Nevo with chemotherapy, two drug combination, or you know, I, I understand sort of the, the value of that and why hypothetically that could lead to better long-term outcomes. But right now it's hard for me to find a place for that. I do think it was, it's gonna drive up cost. I think it's gonna drive up toxicity. And you know, when we look at these regimens, what we're trying to achieve is better long-term survival. And if I told you now that Checkmate 9 LA, that the combination of Nevo, Ipi, and Chemo will lead to a significantly higher tail, that many more patients will be alive at five years, I think all of us would do that in a heartbeat. But we have no sense that one is clearly better than the other, and there's really no surrogate that we have for that. Uh, and so until the, those five years pass, I can't really tell you which is going to have a better five-year survival. So uh, uh, cross-trial caveats aside, at five years, if one regimen seems to lead to a longer, more stable and higher tail to the curve, to the survival curve, then I think we'd all be willing to change practice. Right now, we have multiple regimens that are better than chemotherapy. I think all we can say for sure is that chemotherapy is no longer our standard of care. I agree. I think by itself, it's not the standard of care. But giving four drugs, I find it difficult to give nevo in combination with chemotherapy. It would be probably very difficult for me to even choose that option in even a select patient. Yeah, I think it's hard to justify that um, without evidence that it's going to be better in the long run, and, and we don't have that yet. So let's move on to targeted therapies. What about HER2-directed therapies uh, in non-small cell lung cancer in patients who have HER2 mutation or uh, have HER2 overexpression? Yeah, HER2 mutants, you know, we, we've looked for a long time at different strategies to target her 2 mutant on small cell lung cancer. And most of our efforts have been looking at tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, but what we saw at ASCO were results from Dr. Egbert Smith on the Destiny Lung 01 trial. And this really looked at uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan 
uh, or TDXD in Herchin mutant lung cancer. This is an antibody drug conjugate, an ADC, uh, that sort of couples a topor isomerase inhibitor uh, with a, an antibody that's targeting HER2. And in the HER2 mutant cohort, saw pretty impressive results. Uh, the overall response rate here, almost 62%. And I was really impressed by the duration, the, the median duration of response, not reach, but the median progression-free survival was over a year, 14 months. Um, in, in previously pretreated patients, uh, this is, is quite impressive. And this trial, you know, single arm study, but 42 patients, it's a decent sample size. Uh, I was very impressed with the efficacy. And in lung cancer, it's a strategy, the ADC strategy, that we're a little late to the game to. These, these are drugs that are used in other cancers quite frequently. Uh, one of our first agents used in non-small cell lung cancer uh, was, was Rova-T used for small cell. We know that that turned out to be a bit too toxic, but this agent clearly has activity and almost certainly will find a place uh, in the management of HER2-mutant lung cancer. Um, there was a little bit of toxicity, uh, as to be expected. Some of that has to do with finding maybe the right dose, uh, and about 20% of patients had to stop treatment due to a drug-related toxicity, but this is a clear signal of efficacy where we don't really have an approved targeted agent. So I, I really look forward to seeing that data mature a bit more and, and to really getting access to that, that potentially game-changing drug. I think that was impressive. The results with the drug were very impressive. And I think that it will probably get approval based on that uh, small study of 42 patients. I agree. I mean, we can, when you see results, you know, sort of this profound in a, a genomically defined population of patients, it really shows how when we're using the right biomarkers, when we're using rational drug design, we can really show pretty significant effects in, in single arm, relatively modest sized studies. So then we had the approval recently also of capmetinib, uh, and there was uh, a presentation on capmetinib for met-positive met patients. Can you talk a little bit about that study? You know, we saw a couple of presentations on met. We saw uh, so, some data from tapotinib. That's another met inhibitor uh, for met exon 14 that came with a New England Journal publication. We already had the FDA approval of capmetinib for met exon 14 mutant patients. And, and those approvals are important. MedExon 14 skip mutations, that's not one mutation. It's sort of multiple different mutations that have the same end result. But with the FDA approval there, this is definitely a target that, that we need to start looking for. Uh, what we saw at ASCO was some data from capmatinib in MET amplified non-small cell lung cancer. And when we think of MET amplification, uh, it's a little bit blurrier. Uh, you know, mutations are very clear to, to define. They're easier to to have concrete values for. Amplification is a question of degree. And so it's, it's always a, a little blurrier. That, that's sort of my, my take from amplification. I don't know if you agree with that, Chandra. I agree. But the, these approvals are coming one after another and based on small studies. We probably will never have randomized studies. So how are we going to resolve this over a uh, prolonged period of time? That based on just phase two studies, uh, we are going to get approval of these targeted agents. Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, do we need a randomized trial is, I guess, the question that we need to, to ask. We've had approvals based on single-arm studies um, in settings where we can do randomized trials. We often do. But some of these markers are so rare that to do a randomized trial would potentially take decades, would be impossible to, to maybe do a, a randomized study, and maybe not necessary. When we have a, a rationally designed selective inhibitor with minimal toxicity that is, is designed to really work in a genomically defined subset of patients and shows profound responses with the, the vast majority of patients uh, experiencing 
rapid uh, and deep and durable responses, I'm not sure that I have equipoise doing a, a randomized trial. And I think RET is a great example of that. We saw the, the FDA approval of salpercatinib based on single arm studies because response rates were, were so high. The drug was so well tolerated. And what we saw at ASCO was another selective RET inhibitor, prosetinib from Blueprint. And, and in the ARO trial, we saw a response rate of 65% strong CNS activity, extremely well tolerated because of its, its selectivity. Um, when these drugs have uh, such impressive response rates, in defined subsets of patients with biomarker-driven drug development, I don't really know that we need a, a randomized trial. There is a way, Stephen, that we can build synthetic control arms for these studies. And we can do that with artificial intelligence, deep and machine learning, that looking at uh, large pools of data, develop a synthetic arm for which you can compare it to the phase two arm of the study. And with that, actually, you can say, that there is a benefit as compared to standard of care. And I think that is being done at the current point in time with the technologies that are available. So in addition to oncologists, I guess cancer centers will have to employ software engineers and bioinformatics people to develop synthetic control arms so that we can do these studies very rapidly. I love it. And I think that first attempts have already happened. So this is really where the, where the future needs to go. Innovative trial design. When you have a drug that's this effective, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I'm comfortable randomizing a patient to, to chemotherapy. So if we can find some other innovative strategies where we're not exposing patients to what we truly believe is an inferior. Exactly. So there would be single arms and the synthetic control arms would be from the database and uh, artificial intelligence will pick that. So if you have a 60% response or a 100% disease control rate as with the pralacetinib, then you can say that, yes, there is a possibility that we will not be able to see more benefit or there will be more benefit as compared to what the current standard of care is. So I think that we are going to go towards synthetic control arms with uh, artificial intelligence and oncology. I'm very happy to hear that. So moving on, uh, there was an abstract presented where they combined first-generation and third-generation EGFR inhibitors, right? Jefitinib with OC. Yeah, this was an interesting strategy. When we think of our first-generation drugs, we understand that the majority of patients who develop resistance to a first-generation EGFR kinase inhibitor develop the T790M mutation, threonine to methionine at position 790 in exon 20. And that T790 mutation really uh, changes the conformation of the receptor, interferes with uh, drug binding sites, and that mediates resistance to the first-generation drug. A third-generation drug, like osimertinib, binds differently. And so the mutation at T790 really doesn't have an impact on a drug like osimertinib. Instead, uh, the, the comparable gatekeeper mutation for osimertinib would be C797S. And because it is a different site, the first generation drugs can maintain activity in the presence of uh, C797S. And so this strategy is really combining a first generation drug by, by targeting, um, uh, by combining a first and third generation drug uh, we can maybe prevent or at least delay resistance to either drug. Um, and this may have an impact on the eventual mechanism of resistance, and we need to see if that ends up being a more difficult cancer to, to treat. Is it a setting where maybe I would prefer to see T790M or C797S rather than whatever the, the combination will yield? I think that uh, time will have to tell on that. But what we saw early in early data was that the combination had very high response rates, and, and that the, the combination seemed to be tolerable. So with more time, if that combined strategy 
delays resistance to either one, then that really could uh, prolong disease control with, with that, that first-line kinase inhibitor. So in your practice, I have done this in my practice. A patient who progresses on OC, I've given them jefotinib. I've stopped OC for a while and then given them jefotinib. And I've seen responses actually in those patients. It may be a way to actually treat the resistant clone to OC by going back to the first generation inhibitor and then restarting OC if they have still D790M. Yeah, I think we agree that, that we need better options in this setting. That when you, you progress on osimertinib, as good of a drug as osimertinib is, you know, we, we haven't progressed very far beyond osimertinib. And um, part of it is because resistance is so heterogeneous. And we can see potentially some responses to earlier generation EGFR inhibitors. Sometimes we can see RET fusions, where maybe the addition of a RET kinase inhibitor can be effective, BRAF fusions, KRAS mutations. I think multiple combinations or sequencing therapy in different ways is going to be going to be informative. Uh, how to best use those in, in a given patient is something that I think we're not really not really uh, quite able to do as well as we need to. But one strategy that, that I really like, Chandra, and I'd love your, your opinion on this too, we've seen over the past few years, that in an effort to really knock out as many clones up front as we can, the addition of chemotherapy to osimertinib seemed to, to improve survival. And I wonder if that's a strategy that, that you believe in. Uh, no, I think that, meaning when I was uh, in training, we always used to say, should we give the best drug first or the best drug after the, the second best drug? And we always came up with the strategy that the first best drug was supposed to be given first, and then only you can go to the second drug. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have followed during uh, these last three decades that I've been in uh, practice. Absolutely, absolutely. But I think what we saw also is that when we give them together, so combining chemotherapy with osimertinib or with a, a TKI in the trials that were done in Japan and India, uh, those were the first generation drugs. But by combining TKI with chemotherapy, with chemotherapy. maybe we can, we can extend survival. And I agree. One of the interesting studies I saw at, at ASCO, somewhat of a flawed trial, a lot of difficulty interpreting it. But what really stood out to me was, was the SINDOS trial. You, know, you remember this was a, yeah. a randomized phase three trial, modest size. Um, this was for patients with metastatic EGFR mutant lung cancer who had five or fewer sites of metastases, and they all received an EGFR kinase inhibitor in this setting, a first-gen drug, and they were randomized to get radiation, SBRT, to the five lesions or TKI alone. So everyone's getting TKI randomized to introduce SBRT early on, right away, not a progression, but right away. And what we saw was the early integration of radiation led to much better outcomes. Right. PFS hazard ratio 0.62, survival hazard ratio 0.69. When I saw the presentation, those numbers really stand out. A lot of problems with the trial, right? Uh, excluded patients with brain metastases. These are, were older drugs. I think most glaring is that progression, there were no TKIs used. So no one got OC at progression, just chemo. And I don't really know how this applies to you know, patients of, of my practice and your practice who are getting OC up front. But the strategy to me, was very reminiscent of the concurrent chemo TKI strategy where, you know, if I give radiation up front, maybe I'm killing some clones that eventually would have led to resistance to my kinase inhibitor. By knocking those out early on day one, I can allow the TKI to work for a longer period of time, you know, and, and, you know, could I potentially see a world where maybe we give chemo for a few cycles and SBRT and TKI uh, and then just continue TKI. Will that lead to sort of longer periods of control? 
But the definition of oligometastatic disease is different at very at different places. Should it be less than three non-progressing lesions, or should it be less than five, or should it be less than two? Absolutely. So terminology here is important, and you're right. Uh, Everyone uses a, a different a different definition. So we're we're still not quite there yet, but uh, some interesting signals I think in those trials. I agree with you. I think uh, the lung cancer uh, podcast won't be complete until we talk about the DARA trial, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so let's not forget and tell us about the DARA trial, which was probably practice changing in today's state. Yeah, I mean, this is the big story. And I think we're all kind of still processing what we saw. For background, this was a large, well-powered phase three trial of adjuvant osimertinib versus placebo uh, in patients with a resected EGFR mutant stage 1b to 3 non-small cell lung cancer. And so to be eligible, you had to have a sensitizing EGFR mutation. They limited it to deletion 19 or L858R. They did include brain imaging as well, and, and so no brain metastases. And after a complete resection, they're randomized one-to-one to receive osimertinib 80 milligrams a day for three years or placebo. Adjuvant chemotherapy could be given, and I think some would argue should be given, but when they showed the results, only about 55% of patients received chemo. Uh, and to me, this was a potential flaw in this study. I don't know if that stood out to you, Chandra. Meaning it is a flaw, but actually the study was done very well. I agree. It, it was balanced. It wasn't stratified by chemotherapy, but it was balanced between those. Right. And I think we can probably explain some of it uh, by stage. You know, if we look at um, patients with 1B, you know, adjuvant chemotherapy probably plays a lesser role, really. I, I, think I agree. Your so ma- major role was in stage 3A disease, right? Yeah, exactly. And so we haven't seen that breakdown yet. So maybe if most patients with stage three got chemo and hardly any patients with stage one got chemo, that might explain why not everyone received adjuvant chemo. So uh, overall, it did seem balanced in the two arms. And you know, the study is, is immature, but an independent data monitoring committee saw the data and recommended unblinding it because of an overwhelming uh, efficacy response uh, signal. And we saw those curves for the first time on Sunday. And I agree, they were, they were overwhelming. They were impressive. Right? The, the DFS hazard ratio in the resected stage two and three, that was the primary endpoint, was 0.17. It's a pretty profound hazard ratio. It really stood out to me. It's unprecedented. I mean, I've never seen a hazard ratio in a lung cancer study of 0.17. And even in patients with stage two and three A disease of 0.21, that is also impressive. It really is. I mean, these curves split immediately and it... It, it really widens. And if you look at the shape of these CAM curves for disease-free survival, the osimertinib curve, pretty flat, right? At two years, it's still at about 90%. Um, remember, treat, patients were treated for three years. If you look at the placebo arm, which you would, I guess, consider your standard of care, that two-year disease-free survival rate was only 44%. And, and that, to me, stood out. Just how poorly you do without getting, getting TKI. Sort of the natural history of this disease is, is quite poor. I think Roy did not comment on uh, where these patients progress, but he did show on the last slide that there may be actually a higher incidence of brain metastases. I think it would be good to uh, see what the data comes out subsequently on longer-term follow-up. Yeah, that was compelling to me. I mean, when, when we look at, at the ADORA trial, one of the big critiques of the study is that we have not seen an overall survival benefit. And while they showed OS survival curves, they're very immature. And some would sort of stick with the dogma that if you are going to show a benefit in the adjuvant setting, in a curative setting, you need to prove that you're extending survival. And why I think it's particularly relevant to Adora is that 
if someone relapses uh, with an EGFR mutant lung cancer, many believe that we can salvage that patient, that we still have an effective treatment like osimertinib, and so relapse can be effectively treated. But the, the sort of other side of that argument is, you know, osimertinib, a kinase inhibitor, may work more effectively, may work for a longer period of time, uh, even if it is early metastatic disease. If there's a smaller tumor burden, if there's only microscopic disease, it may just be a more uh, a more effective treatment. And I can sort of speak anecdotally. I would believe that we could salvage those patients. We watch closely upon relapse. We can deliver osimertinib, but we're never going to be able to salvage 100%. And I, very early in my career, had two patients with resected lung cancer, non-smokers, both EGFR positive, and, and they did very well with surgery. We observed them after chemotherapy, and both of them had fulminant relapse only in the brain. So no uh, uh, relapse within the lungs, within the body fulminant CNS relapse that I was not able to salvage, even with delivering osimertinib. And, and since then, I've been monitoring the brain very closely in patients who've had resection. But to me, one of the big draws is just as you mentioned, Chandra, that, that osimertinib can help me protect the, the, the brain and, and really prevent some of those fulminant um, uh, relapses, which are very difficult to recover from. I'd be tempted to give it in my next patient, though it's not approved as of yet. But I think that the data are so impressive. I agree with you, Chandra. This is something we definitely need to, to discuss with patients. And I think that um, we, we have to employ a shared decision-making model here. And so right. I, I would explain to the patient that, you know, as critiques as, as critics would, would point out, that I don't know if giving you a certain will eventually make you live longer. I don't have that data yet. What I do know is that two years, the, the two-year DFS rate, 90% versus 44%, and a hazard ratio of 0.17, a significant reduction in the risk of relapse and a drug that's fairly well tolerated, I think I would need to put to the patient, I got to be careful not to push my values and say, look, I may be a stickler for OS, but here's what we see. And is uh, is this disease-free survival enough value for you to sort of justify this treatment with survival uh, maybe up in the air for now? And, and I think that most people would say yes. So what's the future for lung cancer? We have gone to immunotherapy, targeted therapies, chemotherapy. What is next? Well, I, I think we really need to start looking at combinations of therapies. When we look at, at lung cancer, when we find an effective treatment, our biggest challenge in the clinics is acquired resistance. We have uh, cancers evolving. We have residual disease. We're never able to, to really get rid of maybe 100%. I really think that we can take that next step, maybe with combinations. Uh, you know, If we can target different clones in different ways, maybe combinations of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, uh, radiation therapy trying to account for every one of those clones to not overcome resistance when it emerges, but really trying to, to prevent resistance. But what we really need to see in, in the future is a large-scale investment from, from everybody in the development of, of powerful biomarkers. You know, these empiric combinations and permutations, they may improve outcomes somewhat modestly, and there's a place for that. But, but to really limit cost and to maximize benefit I think we all have to collectively do a better job at delivering these drugs where they're very likely to help in a meaningful way. And, and I believe that we will see that in the relatively near future. Here's my take. I think that we will see more data emerging with uh, T cells gene en engineered with antigen receptor. We know that CAR T cells are more effective in uh, liquid malignancies. I think the T cell receptor uh, therapies will probably be effective in uh, lung cancer. 
And moving forwards, you may see data with bispecific antibodies. So that in combination with PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors. These are the ultimate targeted therapies. I agree. I'm excited about seeing those come into our, our, our clinics. Well, thank you, Dr. Stephen Liu. It has been a pleasure talking to you on today's broadcast. Yeah, anytime. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me on this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. And thank you all for all what you do for your patients and for the field during this time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.